show i'm eric i'm sean and we are the vertiguys we're checking out the dark side of dc we're here to recap and review vertigo comics starting with the big three sandman preacher hellblazer why don't you just tell us what comics we're covering today shano so today we are talking about a hellblazer number 62 and 63 yeah and the first of these is a story titled end of the line and we've got a cover here where john constantine is burying himself along with <laughs> Garth Ennis, Steve Dillon, and Glenn Fabry. This is actually a great cover. Constantine standing in a graveyard with his shovel in his hand and a cigarette in his mouth. And the graves read Constantine, Garth Ennis, Steve Dillon, and G. Fabry, 1511-92, which I'm guessing is the date he drew this cover. November 15th? Probably. Oh, now this cover promises a special insert, Death Talks About AIDS and Safer Sex, which... We've got to cover at some point, but unfortunately it's not reprinted here. Yeah, we're going to need to track that down. But yeah, I agree with you. This is a great cover, and it sort of tells us our creative team. To... Well, hold on a minute. They can't have written the comic. They're dead. Well, yeah, but they, I mean, they were writing it until Constantine killed them. Oh, oh and God. Then, and then buried them. And yeah. then dug them up. Tom Zuiko did the colors. The letters are by Gaspar, and it was edited by Stuart Moore. Is there any previously that we need to cover in this comic book? Not especially. John Constantine is, in this issue, accompanied by his girlfriend, Kit. Yep. But that's, you know, their getting together is not really a recent occurrence anymore. No. There is some backstory to his relationship with his sister Cheryl and Cheryl's husband and their daughter, but it isn't actually super essential to understand any of that in order to understand this issue. Yeah, this issue is very pick-up and blithe. And so we shall. We open in an old graveyard south of Liverpool. John narrates that he's going to finish his smoke, and then he's going to be up to some bad business. There's a lot to like about this page. Uh, I love the art. I love the ruined church in the graveyard here. I love the sort of slow burn build up to revealing Steve Dillon's drawing of the character. Uh-huh. And also, I like the narration, where the Irish Sea spews toxic shit across a lonely shore. Again, all waterways are full of garbage in Constantine's world. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I thought that you were going to say that. And I do like the idea that this is like a kind of a beautiful ruined place. Mm -hmm. It's a desolate kind of beauty that it has to it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Kind of reminiscent of Chantanel's Home in Hell, although that's not a parallel that's going to come up. So we see that Constantine has a shovel and he is standing in front of a grave marker that says Constantine. And we get the title End of the Line. Right, now... In flashback, to explain how we got here, John and Kit are visiting Cheryl and Tony's. Yeah, and Constantine narrates that he could sense ice in the air from the moment that they arrived. Yeah, Gemma is here too. She's a teenaged and pixie cut now. The first time we saw her was 1988's Hellblazer number 4 at the age of 10. It's 92, so she'd be about 14 now. Right. We see a sour expression on Cheryl's face, and Kit knows enough to turn to Gemma and say, you in the doghouse? Yeah. It seems like Steve Dillon doesn't draw Kit as much of a classical beauty as Will Simpson did. She's still a fine-looking woman. And not that there's anything wrong with not being beautiful, but she isn't, like, senses-shatteringly beautiful, the way she's kind of been described. Yeah, it's interesting. In the Will Simpson-drawn debut of the character, she was described as, like, Miss Ireland. Right. Like, with these strikingly beautiful features. And the way that Steve Dillon draws her is really more of sort of like Irish woman number two. Mm. <laughs> right. In a crowd scene, you know? Yeah. We don't get that sense that she's out of Constantine's League that we got <laughs> when Will Simpson was drawing the two of them. Yeah, well, she was sort of described as being, like, unforgettable. 
so unforgettable that John was still kind of a little in love with her years after he parted ways with her and Brendan. Right. It's interesting, too, in comparison to Tulip, who, like, well, no, I guess maybe it's the same kind of thing, because Tulip is, like, the most beautiful woman in the world of Preacher and the, the perfect match to Jesse Custer. But she also has, features are also realistic, not totally idealized. Yeah. Okay, so Cheryl gets John alone and immediately says, what have you done to Gemma? What? I only just got here. John, I'm ready to bloody well smack you one. John protests that he hasn't seen Gemma for months. Right, he also mentions here that it's almost Christmas. Again? <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was... Oh no, this is the same. This'll be the same year. Yeah. Yeah, he said that his business with Ellie would be concluded after the first of the year, which was coming up, so I guess it's still coming soon. Right, yeah, we're, we haven't been another year since then. Yeah. Oh, this stuff gets hard to keep track of. Okay, John says he hasn't done anything, but Gemma pulls out this sort of board with a photo on it. The photo contains a picture of three people. One of them looks like Gemma, two of them are definitely not, and one of them has sort of a cross made of pushpins centering on her. And we can see that the pushpins are arrayed so as not to touch Gemma. Yeah, and there are occult symbols on the board. John recognizes it immediately. Bloody hell, Cheryl, I've messed me life up good and proper with his bollocks. Why would I want to do the same to Gemma? She's my niece. She's my daughter. Now he swears that he didn't give her this item, and then he says, Do you want me to help her? And there's a long, sort of pregnant moment here. There's a panel of just Cheryl considering. Because John helping a situation is pretty fucking bad. But the situation is pretty bad already. <laughs> we cut to Cheryl is having a heart-to-heart -heart with Kit. And she says basically that she actually thought it was a good sign when he said his goodbyes, and then ended up coming back. I thought he was starting to sort himself out, but I found Gemma with that thing, and he was the first one I thought of, you know. Yeah, so she's referring to when John said his goodbyes right before he almost died in Dangerous Habits. Right. We get a bit of a moment here where Cheryl says to Kit that she's been brilliant for John, and Kit sort of seems at a loss for words. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a little bit, too. Also, Gemma's father, Tony, doesn't know anything about all this. Cheryl says that it would destroy him, given the state he's in. We don't know much about Tony, but he used to be a religious fanatic. Mm, that's um, true. He was a member of the Resurrection Crusade. Right, exactly. And here we see that he's just sort of happily listening to something with headphones. Maybe music, but I sort of, in my imagination, he's maybe listening to a sermon or something. Oh, okay. Could be. In any case, he's, like, distinctly oblivious. Right. Yeah, he has these fat 80s headphones on. Quality ones. So, Gemma's room. Gemma is telling John that she is pissed at Sandra, that's the one in the center of the picture, for stealing her boyfriend. John asks who gave her the array, and she says she can't tell. He said he put a curse on her. <laughs> a curse? Who said it, love? What's his name? And then John narrates, Because right then, I wanted to know what to put on the frigger's grave. Oh god, Rob, Robbie Brooks. R.I.P. In that same narration, he mentions that part of what Gemma has been through is Dad's Ghost and the Man. So right. that's a reference to two issues. One of them is Waiting for the Man, in which she was kidnapped to be the child bride of this Resurrection Crusade guy. Yeah. And the other one... What was the title of that issue? It's where John Constantine's father comes back. John has to put the ghost of his father to rest. Hellblazer number 31. Morning of the Magician. Right. Okay, so Robbie came up to Gemma at the party where she was angry. Apparently the same party where Sandra nicked her BF. Yeah, and we get a look at him in blue-toned flashback here. He's a chubby fella with a very 80s fashion sense. And a pentagram t-shirt. Yeah, I actually wondered, do you think Robbie Brooks is drawn cooler in Gemma's memory than he'll actually look when we meet him? Maybe it's just that the line of his coat is doing him favors. Yeah, I think so. I think it's just that. I don't think of this as a particularly flattering image of him. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So he showed her some books of devil magic. He gave her the curse board. And she was about to add blood to it when her mom caught her and took it away. Thank Christ. Jem, 
You're a smart kid, love. Why do you want to mess about with this crap? Well, I don't know. I thought I could get Sandra. I know it was sort of wicked-like, but it was also sort of exciting, too. There's a nice close-up on John, thinking how like him she is. Yeah, because that's what exactly what John said about magic. You know, that he was, back in the Newcastle days, he was in it for the thrill. Yeah. And even earlier, when he put that curse on his dad. Again, Hellblazer number 31. That's what caused his dad to come back as a ghost. There's a nice moment between Cheryl and Gemma here. Cheryl enters. How's my little monster, then? You're not mad at me? No, and they hug. Aw. Kid asks John what's going on. Some bastard's trying to get her into magic. Jesus, it's just like I started out. They make you think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. So John is going to sort out the wanker and put the fear of God into Gemma, but Kit suggests maybe he'd let her handle Gemma. Half a packet of silk cut later, John finds Brooks's place and forces his way in. Anger makes things seem easy. Go out, fix the bastard. Feel better, go home. If only. You're Brooks. You're the one who gives curse boards to kids, eh? What? Have you been talking to that master's bitch? She's my niece, you fat pile of shit. Watch it. You're... Jesus! John Constantine! In my house! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, so it turns out Brooks is a fan. He is delighted to have John here. Shut off, Brian, this is important. <laughs> Terry Butcher's been telling me loads about you. I think I've still got the NME with the membrane interview, too. Come and see! Enemy is New Musical Express. It's a British music magazine. And Mucus Membrane is the band John used to be in way back in the 70s, I think? Yeah. I also noted that uh, Garth Ennis named a character Terry Butcher here, which, of course, made me think of Billy Butcher. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. It's a name he'll reuse for the main character of one of his later series. John implies here that Terry Butcher is not going to make an appearance. He got eaten alive backstage at Live Aid, apparently. So... John does some kind of karate gimmick, and uh, it looks like he throws Brooks here. You stupid bastard. Do you know what would have happened if she'd put blood on that board? What? Why are you angry with me? I mean, she'd be doing the stuff you do. Why aren't you proud? <laughs> so John quickly decides that the strategy he'll take here is one of deception. <laughs> He says some Latin at Brooks. I think it might be actual Latin words, but I'm not sure that they mean anything in sequence <laughs> in this context. Yeah, and then he says, thrice bound, thrice cursed, thrice damned. Which is really similar to a curse that someone lays on someone else in something else I read. A miniseries from Image called Blackwood. Mm -hmm. So it must be based on something. There must okay. be some common intellectual ancestry there. Yeah, but the implication here is that John is not laying down an actual curse. He doesn't have the time or the energy to do something like that. He's just messing with this guy. To be honest, it was just some load of shit I made up off the top of my head. Good enough for him, though. Brooks is now cowering on the floor in the fetal position, th saying, Please! 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 And also before parting, John says, You ever go near Gemma Masters again, you'll find out what a real curse is. Right, so yeah, he, he insinuates that the trigger of the curse that he's put on him will be if he ever talks to Gemma again. So, Gemma and Kit are on a shopping trip. It looks like Kit has just bought Gemma a Han Solo coat. It's a pretty cool coat. Kit's got a nice scarf here, also. Identifies her as a Ravenclaw. <laughs> and here we get another little moment. You're dead good together, you two. I mean, John never really lasted with anyone before, you know? Yes, although the only one of John's previous girlfriends that Gemma met was Emma, the one who was part of the Newcastle set. Gemma adds that her mom says you're Uncle John's last chance. Yeah, and Kit replies, does she now? Sometimes people are just themselves, not what other people hope they'll be. Here, do you fancy a pizza? That's a nice moment for Kit. We've been talking about how... She is treated as John's last chance for a normal life. And it's nice to see her sort of rebuke that notion, sort of reassert that, no, she's actually a person. Yeah, I also wonder if she's kind of starting to feel like John needs her more than she needs John. Mm, okay. Like, if she has doubts about their relationship that are coming to the forefront with all this praise that's being heaped on her. Right. Now, as they're out for pizza, Kit surprises Gemma by revealing she doesn't know anything about magic and doesn't terribly approve of it. 
Yeah, Gemma starts kind of making the same sort of argument that Brooks was about how it's the same kind of stuff John does. And Kit says, well, he keeps it the hell away from me. Right, at her request. Why just care about him, Gemma? Oh, that's really nice. You must know what he's really like then, yeah? Kit says Gemma does too, though, that his drive to help, to stop whatever's hurting people he cares about, that's him. Yeah, I suppose so. It's just, if this magic is, well, wrong or whatever, it just sounds really wild, you know? Oh, I. John's done plenty of wild things, Gemma. He's been all over the world, he's seen incredible stuff, he's had the time of his life, and he's caused a terrible, terrible lot of pain while he's been at it. That's why he was worried about you, love. He doesn't want you mucking up your life the way he did. Gemma explains that she got carried away because she didn't want Sandra to get away with what she had done. And Kit sort of says, well, that's all well and good. <laughs> you should never take shit off anyone, Gemma. I never did. But you don't need magic or whatever. Get angry if you want. Chin the wee bitch. Right. <laughs> Just make sure that people know who you are and what you're about, and that they better not try any old cuteness. Is that what you did? It is. And look who I ended up with. Meanwhile, in a grave. <laughs> this is not actually meanwhile. This is back at the beginning. Oh, you're right. We come out of flashback here. Uh, He's back... actually just been digging up and reburying that grave all day. Back to the frame story. Keeps him out of worse trouble. Yeah, we're in the frame story again. <laughs> it keeps him out of worse trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so he has finished digging up the grave. The grave labeled Constantine. Uh, he narrates that he's here to face something in himself, something that would kill a child in the womb or hurt a little girl just for being the wrong guy's niece. I call it fate. Yeah, now, when he says hurt a little girl just because she's the wrong guy's niece... He means Gemma. Gemma almost got hurt just for being related to him, basically. Okay, yeah, that's what he means by fate. And also, what he means by kill a child in the womb is his twin brother, who, who was still born. The Golden Boy, who in another universe was the Great Magus. Right. You can stop digging now, you little bastard. I'm free. So this gross zombie man climbs up out the grave. Pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> you like this drawing of a zombie? Yep, and he mentions that it's been 20 years since they've seen each other. Did your life turn out to be the magical triumph you expected? There's a little pause here. Where he sort of grins at Constantine, and Constantine scowls. That happens to us all. We get a sniff of sorcery, and oh, what plans we make. We'll shake creation and leave nothing but smiles and wit and a reputation all men envy. Us Constantines. So, we get another flashback. Constantine mentions that his friend Brendan, that would be Brendan Finn, I think, did some research and discovered that there was a still-living Constantine ancestor who had been mixed up with magic. He had a weak curse to live forever. But yeah, so this guy is Harry Constantine. And we gotta talk a little bit about his history here. Served with Cromwell in Ireland at the Drogheda Massacre. But where God's friggin' Englishman did it out of good Christian madness, Harry did it for the loot. Okay, so not 100% on the pronunciation there. I think it's Drogheda or just Drada. But we have to talk about this massacre because it's nuts, so we're going into a history lesson now. Apologies in advance. In September of 1649, the parliamentarians under Cromwell wanted to take Drogheda. There were Irish Catholic Confederation and English Royalists there under the command of Sir Arthur Aston, about 200 men in a garrison. After Aston refused to surrender, the parliamentarians took the city. Most of the garrison and an unknown number of civilians were killed or executed, including all the Catholic clergy in town. Did you say killed or executed? Yes, I did. Now, if you're executed, you're killed, but not all killings are executions. Oh, I see. They were either killed in the fighting or executed. Right, right. I see. Now, here's where things get wild. We don't have an exact number of how many civilians were killed, but one source puts forth the number 2,000. That source? Oliver Cromwell. In addition, it's probably worth mentioning that Aston reportedly, was beaten to death with his own wooden leg. Mad harsh. No kidding. But while the other guys were doing this, in a fit of religious fervor, Harry was probably just taking everything that wasn't nailed down and putting it in a bag. Yeah, exactly. And after that is when he met a character named the Ribbon Queen. As far as I can tell, that's not a historical figure. 
No, that's a Constantine figure. That's a Hellblazer thing. Right, or a Path of Exile thing. And she cursed him to live forever, but the spell wasn't actually strong enough to protect him from violent death, so to keep him from that, she put him where no one would find him, in his own grave. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. I see. I just thought that it was like a fairly weak spell of living forever, and so he bombed around for a while and somehow ended up getting buried alive. But no, she did it. She intentionally buried him alive. Yeah, because I guess that's the only place where he would actually live forever, which was the point. But it was 20 years ago that Constantine dug him up, asked some questions, got his answers, and just fills in the grave again. Back in the present. Well, more guidance and history? Is that what you want from me? A fine bloody nerve you have after the last time. Let's get out of this sodden hole, eh? And he pulls Harry up. John says he doesn't know what fate turns Constantines into bastards, though he thought he came close once. When he came close was probably once again referring to when he met the Golden Boy in Hellblazer number 40. Right. But he knows it tries to get all Constantines. But something else we do. We all try to buck fate. Right down to the last drop of blood. We struggle all the way. Stubborn triggers. Maybe it's all we've got. We get a little bit of a flash forward here. It seems like Harry's been giving John some advice about Gemma. Yeah, Harry says that they all come to a point of choice, and this is Gemma's. A few good words should push her in the right direction. But now he demands a decision from John. I don't want to go back below, John. Bastard though I am. I want to rest. You're a bastard, all right, Harry. But one bastard can forgive another. Who else will? They have a look of mutual understanding, and then John knocks his head off with a shovel saying there's just a tiny bit of murder in the night. Right, so Harry was immortal, but not immune to violent death, and John has just chopped his head off. Back at the house, John looks in on Gemma and narrates, It's no failure to be the last Constantine, because now no one else has to be. All right, so I really liked that. I I thought that the comic book opened on a really foreboding note with mm-hmm. the title End of the Line. Yeah. And it really subverted it and showed how, like, being the end of the line is actually a, a good thing, a hopeful thing. Yeah, I liked a lot in this issue. I liked the scene between Kit and Gemma. I really liked the idea of dealing with John cutting the romantic figure of the lonely trickster sorcerer and that actually having an effect where he's a role model and has to deal with Gemma emulating him. Right. Well, yeah, especially after he uh, rescued her from the cult. Right. I think that message is kind of weakened by the second half of the comic book, taking this this approach that all Constantines have kind of a fate of being a bastard. Right. What John's made of his life is kind of taken out of his hands. Yeah, I think that, that the whole, like, fate explanation kind of reverses a lot of the work that was done in Dead Boy's Heart to actually explain where John Constantine's complexes actually come from, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, in that story we saw him as a very lonely child and one with some sort of deep-down violent urges, probably arising in part from his father hating him. Right. And as well, we've seen him as a teenager or as a a 20-something pursuing magic for the thrill and the ego of it. Yeah, exactly. Another thing is, when I saw him at the grave at the beginning and on the cover, I thought he was going to dig up and talk to his father. Yeah, I thought for a minute that's where it was going as well. So I kind of thought that would turn out to be a more interesting conversation than chatting with a Constantine who's just introduced and killed off here. I don't know. I actually thought that this was sort of more more satisfying than, like, relitigating the... Constantine and his father relationship yet again. Well, it is true that that's been dealt with a number of times, and it's also true that knowing those characters, they weren't going to come to any kind of understanding. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We get a much nicer and more hopeful end to the story here. Yeah, that's very true. And we get another instance, much like when he put his father's ghost to rest, Mm -hmm. of John Constantine fixing one of the mistakes of his past. Yeah, that's true. He talks a lot about what a bastard he is, but occasionally he has the chance to really meaningfully atone. Yeah. And this time he did it by knocking a guy's head off. And being rude to another person. (laughs) Right. There is one more thing I want to mention before we move on from this issue. As far as I know, this is actually going to be the last appearance of Gemma in Garth Ennis' run. And her last appearance 
for about five years of comics. Oh, yeah? Whose run are we in the next time she shows up? I don't remember who writes her the next time she shows up. But Ennis has only about 20 more issues on the title. And to get into spoilers from the future of the series a little bit, because we're not going to be covering uh, Hellblazer that far into the future. At some point when she comes back, she has gotten into magic and has sort of turned into young John Light. Well, that's a damn shame. Yeah, that's a bit of a disappointing development. That brings us to John Constantine Hellblazer number 63, 40. Written by Garth Ennis, art by Steve Dillon, colors by Tom Zuiko, letters by Gaspar, and edited by Stuart Moore. The cover is by Glenn Fabry, and on the cover we have a surly-looking Constantine having a drink and a smoke. You have two shadowy figures visible behind him, a man in a coat and a hat, and some kind of demon. It's the Phantom Stranger and Swamp Thing. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Now, as the title suggests, this is John Constantine's 40th birthday. He turned 35 in Hellblazer number 9. That was September 1988, but in that story, a date on a newspaper told us John's birthday is May 10th. This issue is March 1993, so pretty close to five years real time later. Yeah, and the narration tells us that winter has turned into spring. So, the last issue was before Christmas. This issue is in May. It's been quite a little while. Yeah. He said he was going to take care of some business with Ellie in the, after the new year. Well, that'll come up. He's been sitting on that a little bit. It'll still come up. We know that he's a procrastinator. You can't be too surprised by that. No, not at all. So we open on a well-coiffed John walking through London. He hasn't been dabbling in magic for a while. He says he's not exactly content. The world is still run by bastards. But all he's been thinking about is love and the war to come. Meaning his war against the first of the fallen. Exactly. Should we mention that our first page here is the title page, and it's just a close-up on John's face looking dissatisfied. Fair enough. He comes home, and he sees that Kit has left him a note. She has a sick aunt, so she had to go out of town. I'll try and get back tomorrow or the next day. Sorry, big lad. Love, Kit. Yeah, and XX, which means kisses. He sees sitting next to that note the Daily Mirror and the date on that cover. 10 May 1993. So he realizes that today is his 40th birthday. Yeah, and he won't have Kit with him to celebrate his birthday. So he puts in a call to Chaz. Yep, tells Chaz that it's his birthday and he's 40. Chaz looks forward to making old person jokes. Can I give you all the shit I got then? Hey Chaz, do you want your Zimmer? Do you need a hand in the Kazi, granddad? Christ, we are on form. A Zimmer is like a walker? A Zimmer frame? Oh, okay. And the Kazi is the bathroom. Yes. John invites Chaz out to the pub, but Chaz is indisposed. Sorry, mate. I can't. I'm on till six tomorrow morning. Remember that Chaz is a cab driver. Chaz hasn't been a cab driver for a long time, although the guy sitting here seems to have a dispatch mic in front of him. Yeah, I thought he was talking about cabbing until six in the morning. Okay, that makes sense. He also, was... look at the room they're in. There's, like, naked pinup girls on the walls. I thought that was inappropriate for the small shop that I thought you were at. No, I think, I think it's a cab. No, you're right, and I think we've seen him driving the cab again. But he, he had sold the cab and, and run a little shop late in the Delano run. That's what I was thinking of. Look at this 80s-ass telephone that John is talking on. Oh, yeah, okay. The flat, slightly curved model. Yeah, it's very sleek and very purple. Yeah, well, it's Kit's phone. I want one. Fair enough. Oh, well, John thinks, not like he's ever had a happy birthday before. He buys two bottles of Jack Daniels and 60 silk cut at a convenience store. Not his usual, the clerk notices. Yeah, you should have seen the bloke in before you. Six foot six, big as a bus. He bought ten crates of tenant super, ten bottles of Bushmills, and all this other stuff. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Glad someone's having a good time. See ya. I really like the shop girl in the scene, and I hope we see more of her. <laughs> John needs a regular liquor supplier as a, uh, as a supporting character. I mean, that wouldn't exactly address the problem that he seems to use and manipulate all his friends. If her entire association with him was based on providing liquor... <laughs> John wonders if he's fated to have a bad time, if that's why Chaz and Kit are busy. He's got other friends, he says, but they keep their distance. They sense that it's dangerous to get too close to him. Oh well, time to get drunk and maudlin. Now I have to point out that even getting drunk and maudlin alone in a comfortable apartment would be 
better than his 35th birthday. That was the one where he was wandering around Gotham City drunk and sleeping in a building that was being knocked down. <laughs> yeah, just general rule of living in this world. Stay the fuck out of Gotham. <laughs> in a way, though, this shows off, like, the difference between Delano and Ennis as writers on this series. Delano is more existential. John spent that birthday just, like, utterly distraught at the world around him and his own aging. And the shit he was going to have to do to take down the Resurrection Crusade. It was that long ago. But this issue is much more humanist. As we're about to find out. Yeah, it also speaks to just John's changing circumstances. Mm -hmm. When he was 35, John was damn near homeless a lot of the time. Okay. You know, he literally, he slept in abandoned buildings and on sidewalks. Half the time he was walking around in clothes that he'd vomited and pissed in. Right. <laughs> you know? Now he has a pretty regular neat home life. You know, occasionally the sink is full of dead birds. But... <laughs> that would be the sink in the Kazi, right? Yes. But mostly, you know, he's in a much more grown-up, domesticated spot than he used to be. Yeah, it's true. He's more settled and more mature. Hey, Johnny, catch! John Constantine has to think fast in order to catch what is recognizably a bottle of Black Bush. Which is fairly nice Irish whiskey. Yeah. This would be the, the bottles of Bushmills that the girl mentioned earlier. Oh, the bloke from before. I didn't put that together. Okay. John comes in, and we... Kip's apartment is full of hippies. Kit's apartment is full of the Lord of the Dance, <laughs> Nigel, Ellie, Zatanna, and two other characters. Well, three other characters I didn't recognize. Oh, yeah. Zatanna's looking sharp. She's got a sort of short bob cut, but she's brought along a blue top hat so that we can recognize her. Now, yeah, as far as I can tell, three of these characters are brand new. And we'll kind of introduce them as we get to them. You have plenty of friends, Johnny. Just have to know where to look for them. I did. And Ellie opines, Come on, John, you've got a reputation to live up to. And John has sort of a nice look on his face. This is this is a complicated look. Yeah, he has sort of a really now <laughs> look on his face. Yeah, you think he's accepting the challenge here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Constantine says to the Lord of the Dance that he hasn't seen him since last Christmas. Right. That was a great issue. They tied one on in order to celebrate the spirit of the piss-up. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have written here, I recognize the guy in back, the spirit of the piss-up, I mean the Lord of the Dance. He chats with Nigel, the anarchist from the Royal Blood story arc. Bloody hell, it's Nigel Ingalls. Never thought I'd see you on me birthday, son. Uh, I mean, even I have to take a break from the war on capitalism now and then. They talk about how the prince from Royal Blood has had some marital troubles since the demonic possession. I hear he got up to some well-dodgy stuff in the bedroom, and, well, I'm not going to draw you a picture. We couldn't exactly reintroduce Nigel without taking a chance to shit on the Prince of England, I guess. Yeah, Nigel is from the Royal Blood story arc, and we have to kind of give the readers a refresher on that. Right. Now for a refresher on a character we haven't met. Sorry, I just love how he says I'm not going to draw you a picture. It really, like, seems very to me like a nod's as good as a wink to a flying man. <laughs> Say no more! Say no more! <laughs> photography? Eh? Candied photography? <laughs> now we're going to have to post that whole sketch or reenact that whole sketch. No, I mean, we already just did the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't done the punchline yet. So now we get a refresher. What's it like? <laughs> so now we get a refresher on a character we haven't met before. This big hippie in the sunglasses. This guy's name is Header. Yeah, and he asks if this is the Nigel that wanted to do voodoo on Margaret Thatcher. Ellie chimes in. Bloody idiot. I mean, didn't he know who she had on her side? So we don't know who that is, but the implication is that Thatcher was into something pretty evil. <laughs> yeah, Thatcher was put in power by demons. Which actually is canon. It is? Well, because we know that the banking sector of hell had a strong interest in her ministership. Oh, that's that's true. Way back in Hellblazer number three. So we find out that this big dude is Header, 
and the guy dressed like a priest, Constantine refers to as Rick the Vic. Short for Vicar, no doubt. And Rick offers to sell John some banned literature from an archbishop's collection. Hedder is ribbing him a little bit, and he says, May the Lord bless and keep you, Hedder, <laughs> while giving him the finger. <laughs> Next we meet a foul-mouthed rabbit. This guy is apparently a stage magician who has been trapped in the body of his own prop. Still do that trick where you pull a magician out of a hat. Give me a hat and I'll effin' show ya. Three hours later, and happily drunk, John goes out to piss in the alley. Doesn't Kit have bathrooms? Yeah, and you know what? We're not supposed to know, because he says, Frigg knows how I got out here. Yeah, so he's refusing to explain why he's pissing outside. Somebody comes up behind him, and John turns too quickly, pissing on this person's shoes. He accidentally pisses on their shoes. I had hoped we would ignore the cold facade that our kind deems so necessary, if only at this time of celebration. But I see there will be no hands clasped against the dark this night. I see I must remain a stranger. <laughs> and the phantom stranger disappears <laughs> into the night. That's right. So, I just, in Hellblazer number 63, John Constantine accidentally pees on the phantom stranger. <laughs> yeah. And he wears nice shoes. I mean, we've talked before on this podcast about how the Phantom Stranger is a snappy dresser. Absolutely. John laughs at the irony that Phantom Stranger has been out on his own without any friends for many, many years. And when he finally tries to come out of the cult, John accidentally pissed on him and he went away. Yeah. Now, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy here. Okay. Um, Eric, this is our comic book podcast. Right. This is This is the venue for it. So this actually really made me think, because, as we mentioned before, in the New 52 continuity, it's established that the Phantom Stranger is Judas Iscariot. Okay. That does not seem to be true in this timeline. And One of the Phantom Stranger's defining traits, up until that reveal, was that he didn't have a backstory. He was a mystery. Right. True. And I think that this is sort of more evidence that it's not. Because if the thing that made you the Phantom Stranger is that you betrayed your best friend and sent him to hell. Mm -hmm. I don't see you showing up at birthday parties, hoping <laughs> to get let in. <laughs> you know? John tells the story upstairs at the party. Everybody thinks it's funny, except Satana. John asks Hedder about Terry Butcher. Same guy we heard about last issue. The guy who got eaten at Live Aid. Except apparently he didn't. I'll tell you where he is. He's at the bottom of the Clyde. We have baseball bat up his arse. I caught the wee frigger in bed with my daughters, for Christ's sake. Hedder goes on to explain that uh, that last year, Butcher pissed off Mike Adams and got his dick cut off. Do we know Mike Adams? Yeah, Mike Adams is the psychopath who burned down... Nope. Mike Adams was the bookie who used to employ the psychopath who burned down the pub. There you go. Okay, that makes more sense. Right. Hedder also mentions that they left him an inch to pee with, though. Old Adams always was a big softie. Which we've heard, like, this entire story before with Frankie the Eunuch in Preacher. Yes. Except didn't Frankie the eunuch not get left an inch to piss with? Yeah, but he tells the story about how even I cut some guy's dicks off, you know, but I always leave him an inch to piss with. <laughs> right. Constine, did you spike my effing broccoli? Yeah, at midnight the rabbit's broccoli turns into Swamp Thing. What is the meaning of this? He hands John a crumpled envelope which reads, Mr. S. Thing, the Swamp. You invited him? Bloody hell, mate. Oh, come on, you two go back ages. Invited to what? I am becoming impatient. Well, now you know how I feel trying to talk to a bloke who speaks at subtle miles an hour. Grow some extra vocal cords, you bark, and it's me birthday. Swamp Thing is sorry that he was grumpy. Yeah, and to make up for it and show that he's in the mood of the party, he grows Nigel's marijuana plant gigantic. Make my monster grow. <laughs> What is that? That's from fucking Power Rangers Season 1. And Zatanna says, Geez, Nigel, Cheech and Chong eat your heart out. Seems like that's there to explain to us that this is a marijuana plant. Yeah, in case the, the nerds reading this comic book didn't know. Also, I want to mention here that while they were gone getting the marijuana plant, Hedder apparently beat up a cop. Oh, okay. That's what that meant. Got it. God knows where Edder got his new hat, but I'll bet one little piggy's off to casualty. That's fucked up. Yep. So they see the giant marijuana plant. Everybody's really into it, including Zatanna, who has like a very, a very tulip-like look as she's 
in awe of this amazing development. We find out that the marijuana plant's name is Treebeard. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, Treebeard, I knew you'd grow up one day. Right, who's got the Rizzlers? A Rizzler is a rolling paper. I learned that word in a street song. That figures. Swamp Thing excuses himself. He has to go back to Homa, Louisiana and protect his family. Look, for what it's worth, right? I'll try and leave you alone from now on, okay? You are very drunk, Constantine. Goodbye. So Constantine's trying to make a nice gesture, even if he probably won't stick to it when he sobers up. Right. Zatanna asks Nigel how she met... How... Zatanna asks Nigel how she met Constantine. Yeah, she just figures Nigel will know. Well, he's a journalist. Right. (laughs) Well, our student union was haunted, right? This sociology student jumped out a window on acid, then he came back. So Constantine showed up out of nowhere and said he could get rid of it. I thought he was going to do an exorcism. Thing was, he said it was the crappiest ghost he'd ever seen. Just walked up to it and said, piss off, and it did. Always seemed to screw it up at the end. I keep hearing about these huge ones you can do, but it sounds like a bit of a myth if you ask me. Nigel turns to see that John has rolled the longest blunt. (laughs) Yeah, John has a huge one. (laughs) Okay, so later everybody is stoned as Atana says so backwards. (laughs) I've got the munchies, something shocking. Zatanna asks about Kit, and Ellie chimes in too. Kit must be something special, they've been together over a year. That's apparently an achievement for Constantine. And in keeping with what we heard last issue, that his relationships don't usually last that long. Seems like it's the end of the night now. Narration box says six in the morning. Zatanna says, take care you lunatic. And Nigel is confessing his love to Ellie. You're playing with fire, little boy. As Ellie leaves, she says, We gonna sort this frigger soon? And John says, Oh yeah. So that gives us our update on that. He's still planning. Mm-hmm. As Nigel leaves, John tapes a sign to his back that says, All coppers are bastards. So there's no one left but John and the Lord of the Dance. There comes a point at all the best parties where it's just two blokes and a bottle of whiskey. Sexist. Yeah, fair. <laughs> How does it feel to be 40, the Lord asks. Not that different, John says. He's had a buggered-up life, but at least it's been interesting. The Lord of the Dance tells him that he needed the party. Need to let your guard down now and then, or you'll frig yourself up royally. The Lord of the Dance goes on that the Pogues wrote a song that could have been about you. You're a rake at the gates of hell. I am not familiar with that song. Hmm. I may as well tell you, Johnny, you're in for a bloody rough couple of years. You've pissed off the last people you ever should have. But I'll be there for you when the time comes, son. Be lucky. So this is interesting because this really kind of makes it clear that when Garth Ennis started his run yeah. with Dangerous Habits, he wasn't just trying to write like the definitive John Constantine story, mm-hmm. which is sort of what it ended up being. Mm-hmm. But he was actually setting down a kind of origin story for the rest of his run. Right, yeah. This sort of inciting incident that will lead to all this other stuff. Yeah, both in the sense that the first keeps looming over as as a as a threat that's going to return, but also in the sense that that's what put John in this place where he's trying to get out of magic, trying to be a bit less of a bastard to his friends, which has been a running theme for pretty much the entire run here. On the last couple of pages, Kit comes home to find beer and empties everywhere and the giant pot plant. And also, rabbit shite. My wee flat. What have they done to my wee flat? Angry eyes. She finds John asleep with a highball glass in hand. I'm 40, love. I'm an old man. You see the state of this place, wee lad. You're a friggin' dead man. (laughs) All right. Good times. Yeah, that was a fun issue, if not an entirely substantial one. At least we have an update on Ellie, and we now have the impression that the Lord of the Dance is going to be a little more important. Well, you know, it was it was a downtime issue, but I think downtime issues are actually something that comics need. Yeah. Uh, probably more often than we get them. Mm, okay, yeah. Um, there's just no sense of reality to it, and kind of no sense that the characters have real lives if they're just bouncing from one crisis to another without ever changing their clothes, which is the way a lot of comic book series seem to want to operate. Yeah, that's true. 
you were saying, in a recent episode, we were talking about Preacher, yeah. and you said that it's good that Garth Ennis is a writer who can do connective tissue, because yeah. writers who don't have the patience to do connective tissue, they often end up with kind of a mess on their hands. So I think this is a really worthwhile way to spend an issue. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to come back critical on both of the issues this week, because they're actually both quite good. The concept of John having a birthday party with all kinds of weird supernatural shit is really interesting. I guess for me it just didn't, like, reading the issue didn't create the feeling of being at a great party. Oh, okay. Well, I thought it was fun. I thought it was really comparable to the first appearance of the Lord of the Dance. You know, it's nice to see John get a win and just have some crazy drunken good times every once in a while. Yeah. And, like... It goes back to, we've talked before about how to Garth Ennis, like, a good bar is, like, a holy place. Yeah. You know? I think this goes back to that idea. You know, the idea that's put forward kind of explicitly in the Lord of the Dance issue, that, like, a good piss-up is a sacred thing. <laughs> yeah. You know? And Garth Ennis is really kind of trying to communicate that feeling. Yeah, I get that. As well, it's nice that it's nice to see that John has friends because his friends actually show up to his party. You know, it ties in with the fact that he's been trying to be more of a people person, less horrible to his friends over the last couple of years, as well as the the idea that he's not quite as lonely and unapproachable a figure as he'd like to style himself. <laughs> right. Yeah, he was really wallowing in it. Mhm. Mm yeah, he went he went right to wallow. He tried Kid, he tried Chaz, and then, and then Wallow. Yep. Um, we've said loads about Steve Dillon's art on this podcast, and it's fantastic in these two issues. Yep. Very expressive faces and really good action. Yep. And again, I love the beauty of the ruins that John is in in the first issue and the way the layouts build up is the foreboding for that scene. You got a Constantine moment? Oh. I mean, there's so many to choose from <laughs> in this couple of issues. But I just have to reiterate once again, in Hellblazer number 63, John Constantine accidentally pees on the fan of Stranger's <laughs> If that's not a mission statement for who Constantine is, as opposed to who the Phantom Stranger is, I don't know. <laughs> right. That would be. Exactly. My Constantine moment is at the beginning of 62, actually, staring into the sea, smoking... Looking all cool, even though there's nobody there to see him. <laughs> right, I'm thinking about how the lake is full of garbage. <laughs> or not the lake, but the... The Irish Sea. The Irish Sea is full of garbage. Yeah. Fair enough. So we usually try to project a convivial atmosphere on this show, but join us in our next Hellblazer episode for Fear and Loathing. But first, in our next Preacher episode... Garth Ennis gives every dog his due. Vertigais is written and hosted by Eric and I. Our theme music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigais.blueberry.com. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. We'd love to hear from you, so get in touch with us. I'm on Twitter at BlankCastSean. I'm on Twitter at Vertigais. Or you can send us an email, vertigais at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertigais. Let your friends know about the show. Leave us a rating or review. If you leave it on the Apple Podcasts app, we'd be happy to read it on the air. But as always, thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. I kind of want to talk a little bit about Immortal Hulk. Okay. Because that's an interesting series. So they I'm... killed off Hulk, but not very long ago. It was like 2015. In Civil War II. Yeah. Yeah, so not long ago. And everybody knew he wasn't going to stay dead very long. He's a very popular character. Yeah, he's a, a cornerstone of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, it's funny because they actually brought him back twice before they brought him back. Okay. Like, they killed him and then they wanted to use him in stories, so they had him be temporarily resurrected. And that happened twice before he got resurrected by Challenger, which is his, like, official... He's alive again as status quo resurrection. And that's not even counting Amadeus Cho, the totally awesome Hulk. Right. Okay. It's also, yeah, also not counting Amadeus Cho. But Immortal Hulk, I mean, everybody rants about Immortal Hulk, and so, like, it would be kind of boring for me to say, I started reading Immortal Hulk. It's great! Just like, just like everyone else says. Oh. I think what it's trying to do is more interesting than what it pulls off. Okay. I actually don't think it really nails what it's going for. 
But what it's trying to be... It's a case of really interesting ambitions that are not quite pulled off. Yeah. Well, yeah. What it's trying to be is very Swamp Thing-like. Ooh, okay. It's very much like, um, we're gonna mix some magic into Mm -hmm. Hulk. Okay. And they have this whole kind of magic... It's built around this whole kind of magical conceit where, like, people who come into contact with gamma radiation... Yeah open themselves up to something called the green door which is like a spiritual doorway to like basically ghosts from hulk's past so you could get yourself possessed by his abusive father so he's like he's like american werewolf in london i don't know anything about american werewolf in london one of the things that happens in that movie is that part of the curse of the werewolf is that he's like followed by all the ghosts of everyone that the werewolf has ever killed i see so yeah, if you come in contact with the Hulk, a ghost from Hulk's past could come out and get you. Yeah, and the first story arc revolves around the fact that Wendigo of Alpha Flight has actually secretly been possessed by Hulk's abusive father. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so, Wendigo or Sasquatch? Good question. Not sure. Okay. Read it on. <laughs> I actually read it. I read the whole thing. I don't know which one. I don't know which one it is. I'm sure Wendigo is mentioned, but I think it's okay. actually Sasquatch. Who okay. Is. But but Windigo factors in somehow too. Yeah, well, the Hulk Windigo is a, a classic grudge match. Yeah, that's how he met Wolverine. True. In any case, so it's really doing like Hulk as horror. They're aiming for like a '70s monster comic flavor. I think so. Yeah, yeah, it's doing a lot of what. Well, especially the whole conceit of like gamma radiation will like fuck up your soul. Yeah, is very Nuke Face papers. The Nuke Face Papers? That's a Swamp Thing storyline. Oh, okay. Just, like, the combination of, like, mysticism with, like, with nuclear panic. Yeah. Is ground that was trod in Swamp Thing. Yeah. And I like that, like, Hulk is in charge. You know, the whole dynamic between Banner and Hulk has shifted. And, like, Hulk is kind of in charge. And Hulk is, like actually a complex character mm, okay. he's neither good guy nor rage machine yeah. he's like kind of an anti-hero he has some good intentions but he's also a bit of a son of a bitch yeah and that's good hulk yeah and when he like this is the same portrayal of hulk that we see in avengers no road home okay where Nix is basically trying to end the world okay and it turns out like one of the big twists is hulk kind of wants to end the world too Okay. Is that because the world's full of jerks, or because he's kind of suicidal, or... More because the world is full of jerks. Okay. People have been mean to Hulk. Yeah. So, yeah, Immortal Hulk. Pretty cool. Hmm. Okay. This Hellblazer book is called Tainted Love. Ooh. Right, yeah. (laughs) Like, if if we take... John Constantine's tears, will that be all, or? (laughs) Sandman. Preacher. Sandman. Preacher. Hellblazer. You said five. There aren't five. There might be. I mean, you could have a big five, but there aren't five in the big three, damn it. This isn't the big ten.